0: And it's always been a point of mine that the audience has to know about the humor of Lincoln. He just had one of the greatest senses of humor of any of our presidents, and I just think people need to know that. Because you always have this dark image of Lincoln, this foreboding, the Civil
1: War weighing down on him. But I think it's always very important to let Lincoln's humor shine. That's right. Lincoln was funny. He was known for his jokes, stories, and love of satire, so much so that his enemies attacked him for it. They didn't think somebody so obsessed with jokes and humor was serious or cultured enough to be president, but Lincoln got the last laugh because he used humor to charm, which helped him get elected. He used humor to get what he wanted. Welcome to Drinking with Lincoln from WNIJ, where we explore Abraham Lincoln's life, land, and legacy through the eyes of the people who know him best, Lincoln presenters. Each episode, we'll explore some aspect of Lincoln's life, and then I'll sit down with our guest for a drink, maybe two, and get their take on America's most popular president. I'll also learn about the presenters themselves, where they come from, why they do what they do, what makes them Lincoln. I'm your host, Clint Cargile. I'm an author, historian, and professional Lincoln appreciator. Today's guest, Lincoln, is Michael Krebs.
0: Stephen Douglas once said in a debate that I was two-faced. I said to the good people listening at the time, I put it to you. If I had two faces, would I be wearing this one?
1: (laughs) Michael has been presenting Abraham Lincoln to the public for 25 years. He credits much of his success to his theater background and the connections it allowed him in Chicago and elsewhere. He works regularly with the Chicago History Museum and the Illinois Office of Tourism. Because of his acting experience, he's portrayed Lincoln in films, documentaries, and TV shows, including a recent episode of the NBC TV series, Timeless. Here he is in the 2015 Civil War drama, Field of Lost Shoes, opposite Tom Skerritt.
0: Do you see me as a monster, Mr. President? I see you as a true general.
1: He's also a go-to Lincoln for commercials.
0: Hi there. I'm the president of Honest Day Broofing. What is Honest Day Broofing, you ask?
1: My latest
0: proclamation is Penny Lane, featuring an array of slot machines that give you more bonuses more often. Honestly. So your total is $5. Indeed. With the Abilify savings card, brand name Abilify may cost about the same as a generic.
1: And he starred in, and this is my favorite, the book trailer for Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter.
2: I've been a slave to vampires for 30 years.
1: Obviously it's better if you can see it, so we'll put a link to the trailer in our show notes. I met up with Michael in downtown Naperville, Illinois, where he was taking part in the unveiling ceremony of a new Lincoln statue. This statue depicts a young Lincoln, 30 years old, near the beginning of his legal and political career, and he's laughing, the world's only laughing Lincoln statue. Also, he's in a city that seemingly has no connection to the real Lincoln, so who brought it there, and why? We'll find out all about that and more on this episode of Drinking with Lincoln. Abraham I wanna start off by talking a little about Lincoln's humor. He caught the humor bug early in life. As a boy, he'd gather the other children around him after church and stand on a stump or a log where he'd imitate the preacher, mocking his sermon. This angered his father, but delighted the other kids. Lincoln seemed to like the attention. He liked to be center stage, all eyes on him. And this desire continued throughout his life. As a young man in New Salem, as a captain during the Black Hawk War, as a young lawyer in Springfield, Lincoln always found himself surrounded by people hanging on his every word, and he never let them down. Because Lincoln was very funny. He was a jokester, he'd matured from his days as the class clown who just wanted attention. Now he used humor to connect with people, to put them at ease, to get his point across in a relatable way. He did this with short jokes or long winding stories that ended in a good punchline. And if you read any of his jokes or stories, you're only getting half the humor, because Lincoln was said to be extremely animated using wild facial expressions and exaggerated mannerisms. He'd kick his legs, fling his arms, flap his hands, whatever was necessary to punctuate his story. He also liked to make fun of himself. He always made fun of himself, especially his looks.
0: I must apologize for having the advantage in this meeting, for my replica and I are allowed to stare upon your faces. You must gaze upon ours. (laughs) I would say that we have the better of the bargain.
1: But he could also make fun of his humble beginnings, his simple education, his rustic roots. And that's probably why I started this whole Drinking With Lincoln series to begin with, because Lincoln is the kind of guy you'd want to drink with in a bar, even if he didn't drink. And people did drink with him in bars, or taverns, I should say, and technically they didn't drink with him, they drank around him while he told stories. This was back when he was a prairie lawyer in central Illinois, writing the Eighth Judicial Circuit. When he was done working for the day, he and his fellow lawyers, often the judge too, would board at a nearby tavern, and Lincoln would regale everyone with his long, humorous stories. He earned such a reputation for this that he gained followers. Lincoln went viral, 1800 style. He had a captive audience that enjoyed rehearing certain stories, and he enjoyed retelling them. So in a way, he was like an early stand-up comedian. When you watch some Lincoln presenters share his more lighthearted stories and one-liners, you catch a certain stand-up vibe. But here was the problem with Lincoln's obsession with humor, as far as his enemies were concerned politicians weren't supposed to be funny. They weren't supposed to crack jokes or make fun of their own looks. How can Lincoln's enemies make fun of his looks, his strange mannerisms, his backwoods education, if he already does it himself? There is one thing that Lincoln's biographers and his contemporaries all agree on. Lincoln loved to laugh. He loved to laugh at his own stories and at other people's stories. Lincoln scholar Richard Carwardine called Lincoln a mold breaker, the first president overtly and consistently to make storytelling and laughter tools of the office. I find this fascinating because Lincoln is often remembered, not for his humor, but for the exact opposite, his melancholy. A lot of that is because of his pictures, his thin face, his naturally sad, sunken eyes, and also because Lincoln really was depressed, and not just because of the Civil War. The people who knew him long before the presidency, including his former law partner, William Herndon, described him as a sad-looking man. He claimed that Lincoln's melancholy dripped from him as he walked, dripped from him. And Lincoln was aware of this, He readily admitted that he used humor to relieve his depression. It's only been in the last few decades that scholars have really looked into Lincoln's use of humor, not as some charming foible, but as a calculated strategy on his part, a skill that he honed over the course of a lifetime. And in doing so, scholars have also had to sift through hundreds, maybe even thousands of apocryphal stories. Even while he was alive, publishers printed jokes and stories attributed to Lincoln that were completely made up. And how many of his own stories were true? Honest Abe knew how to spin a good yarn, and every writer and humorist knows you've sometimes got to bend the truth to get the best results. Or just make up the truth altogether. (laughs) Make up the truth. That's some political speak for you. But what I'm trying to say is, at that time, during Lincoln's life, before anyone knew the tragedy it would become, he had a reputation for being funny. It was a part of his character. Everybody knew about it. People joked about it. And this is something that has been largely forgotten by all those stoic, grim visaged statues that stare down at us from across the country. Which is why I found it so intriguing when I heard that Naperville, Illinois, would be unveiling a statue depicting a young Lincoln captured in mid-laugh. And they were calling it, appropriately, Laughing Lincoln. From my own research, I haven't found any other statues that show Lincoln laughing. This is the only one. I also found out that Lincoln presenter Michael Krebs would be at the unveiling, because you can't unveil a Lincoln without a Lincoln, and he's a Lincoln I wanted to drink with. So on a cold rainy day, my sound guy Spencer and I head to Naperville to witness the statue unveiling and find out how this whole project came about. First we meet up with Bran Baboski, president and founder of Century Walk, a nonprofit that brings public art, including Laughing Lincoln, to the community.
3: A number of years ago, I read an article in the Smithsonian magazine about a town up in uh, British Columbia that lost its mills and uh, the town fathers picked a project to take care of the fact that they were losing jobs and the party came up with creating murals. So they got a lot of local artists and over a 10-year period, they created 30 murals, resulting in about 400,000 people a year visiting. I read that article and I thought, I've always liked art, I've always liked history. Maybe Naperville could do something like that. They built a Ford, we could build a Cadillac, as it were.
1: Brand explored his options and began raising funds at both the state and local level. In 1996, Century Walk installed their first three art locations.
3: We call them locations rather than pieces of art
1: because at several locations, we have several pieces. Skip ahead 20 years and $4 million worth of art later, and Century Walk is ready to commission its 50th location. And that's when Brand is approached by Mary Lou Worley.
3: I got involved in this project when my father passed in May of 2015. It had been one of his wishes that sometime there would be a statue or a portrait of Lincoln where people could come and rub his nose. He really enjoyed seeing the shiny nose in Springfield.
1: Mary Lou Worley is the oldest of seven children of the late Don Worley, a colorful local salesman, community organizer, city councilman, and history buff who always looked for ways to improve his community and preserve its public spaces. The Worley family traces its Naperville roots back to the 1840s. Don Worley was born February 28, 1928. He left Naperville in 1946 to join the Army. In the 1950s, he began his sales career by managing a jam and jelly shop at Disneyland. Walt Disney once told him, Don, there is great satisfaction in making other people happy. And those are the words he lived by. At the age of 67, he purchased a trolley bus so he could give history and special event tours of Naperville. He served as the city's trolleymeister for the next 20 years. His daughter Annette still runs the business today and is known locally as the Trolley Chick. After Don passed, Mary Lou and her siblings approached Bram Baboski about creating a memorial for their father, some kind of public art for the community, something that would make other people happy. Brand knew Don, always admired his colorful character and his stalwart stance on protecting Naperville's public spaces, so he and the Whirlies formed a committee. But where to begin? That's when Mary Lou remembered the trip to Springfield, when her dad visited the large Lincoln bust outside the Lincoln tomb and rubbed its big, shiny nose. Don really liked that rubbable nose. He thought it provided a tangible connection to Abraham Lincoln, something that people of all ages could enjoy. So she started thinking, why not Abraham Lincoln?
3: I'm in front of the computer Googling statues, sculptures of Lincoln, and they're all very old and with the beard and the top hat, which he had very late in life. There were some statues that had him as a young lawyer and it was all kind of repeating a similar motif.
1: Mary Lou wanted something unique, something that tied together Lincoln, Naperville, and her father. She had read Carl Sandburg's biography of Lincoln, and there was one aspect of his character that always stood out.
3: He was a storyteller, telling gollywhoppers and slapping his knee and laughing, and I thought, Laughing Lincoln.
1: And that's how Laughing Lincoln was born. And by the way, gollywhoppers That's an awesome word. But how old should Lincoln be? Is he the young sales clerk in New Salem? The captain in the Black Hawk War, the prairie lawyer, the elder statesman. And that's when the committee homed in on a little-known connection between Lincoln and Naperville.
3: This occurred in 1839, and he was 30 years
1: old. A clean-shaven Lincoln, relatively unknown, is in his third term in the Illinois House of Representatives. He's serving alongside Joseph Naper, founder of Naperville. Lincoln is a Whig, Naper is a Democrat. So they're on opposite sides of the aisle, but they actually have a little in common. They're both Illinois transplants, and they'd both been captains during the Black Hawk War. They found ways to help each other out.
3: Lincoln wanted to move the state capitol from Vandalia to Springfield. Joe Naper wanted to see DuPage County carved out a cook.
1: With Naperville as the county seat, of course.
3: They didn't typically vote on the same side of issues, but they did swap their votes, and each supported the other in each one of these things.
1: So, some say it was a vote swap. Others say it could just be coincidence. Either way, that's Lincoln's connection to Naperville. He helped ensure it would become the county seat of DuPage County, which also ensured its survival on a rough frontier that saw the rise and fall of many settlements. So, we've got a laughing Lincoln. We've got an exact time period and a Naperville connection. Where to put it?
3: Now, Dad became very familiar with and fell in love with Central Park.
1: Central Park is home to Naperville's municipal band. It also has a nice playground. I have little kids, so I have to be on the lookout for such things. And back when Joe Naper and Abraham Lincoln voted to designate Naperville as the county seat of DuPage County, This was where the county put its first courthouse. That structure is long gone now, and when the county seat later moved to Wheaton, the county donated the land back to Naperville to be used as public space. It played a central role in Naperville's community life for the next century. Mary Lou's dad grew up near Central Park and cut through it on his way to school each day. He became quite fond of that little green space nestled in the heart of the city.
3: But in the 70s, when the malls came into existence, there was a strong concern amongst the businesses in Naperville downtown that this was going to take business away from them. So they evaluated and said, well, we we need to find more parking. Well, there's Central Park. We can put cars there. And dad was like, oh, no, you can't.
1: At that point, Don Worley became Central Park's cheerleader, its chief protector. He knew the history of the park, that it was designated to be used specifically for public purposes. It was a park of and for the people and Don Worley would see it respected as such. So he opposed the business leaders, the developers, the Chamber of Commerce, and in the end, he forced them to reach a compromise. The city did slice off a little of the land for parking, but the majority of it remained intact and it's still there today.
3: At the time, I think it was a good balance, but when you start nipping away at something, pretty soon it's gone all together. And so he was always a champion of getting rid of those parking places. I like to consider them as that part of Central Park is cleverly disguised as parking, because it could always come back to bring more life and more area and more green space.
1: Without Don Worley's intervention, it's unlikely Central Park would still be there. His effort and his success inspired him to enter public service, and he later won a seat on the city council. So the Worley family thought it fitting that Laughing Lincoln should reside in Central Park. And right here, I I had a really good sensational story that took place in Central Park in the late 1860s. It had violence, thievery, mob action. It was a real golly whopper. But my producer said it was too much of a tangent, and as always, he's right, so I cut it. But I'm not going to completely cut it. It's too good, so I'll just put it at the very end. Please stick around for that. Anyway, with the statue location secure, Century Walk put out a national call for artists to create a life-size, young, laughing Lincoln. From there, the Worley family shortlisted four artists and ultimately chose sculptor David Allen Clark of Lander, Wyoming.
2: It's interesting as a portrait sculptor, you get to really look at people's skulls
1: and skull shapes and proportions therein, because that really doesn't change through age. David began working as a professional sculptor in his teens. He specializes in portraits, and his work can be found in cities, museums, universities, and parks all over the country. Is this your first Lincoln? Yes,
2: it is. It's been a really nice experience. It was a fun exercise. Bronze ends up being a lot of somber pieces because you're commemorating, you know, people are dead or long since dead. It's nice to work on lifeful, fun,
1: engaging pieces. I wanted to know how he went about researching Lincoln's face. Naturally, he started by poring over the more than 100 photographs of Lincoln that still exist. Unfortunately, a lot of those
2: photos, as you know, were done with glass plate negatives where you had to sit still for two minutes,
1: so they were all
2: very closed mouth somber
1: affairs. The earliest known image of Abraham Lincoln is from around 1846 or 1847, later than the time the Laughing Lincoln sculpture is supposed to depict. Most of the images we have of him were taken during his presidency. Also, there are no photos of Lincoln laughing. There are a couple pictures where you could say he's smiling, but that's a stretch. He's barely lifting the corners of his mouth. And those are from 1865, the last year of his presidency, his life, actually. So David had to dive into contemporary descriptions of Lincoln, the way people who knew or had met with him described his features. His face
2: would just spontaneously crinkle and move when he heard a humorous story or a jest or something. And and then things would settle back down.
1: He also used models and photos of people smiling to refresh himself on the anatomy of just how smiling works.
2: We all have the same muscles and generally you make the same nasal lobial folds and things like that.
1: So with artistic license to create Laughing Lincoln however he wanted, how did he go about doing it?
2: The challenge was coming up with a proper interpretation. What's a chuckle? What's a guffaw? What's a wry smile? Emotions are so fleeting across a face. There's such a transient amalgam of competing micro-expressions, if you would, that it's, it's really hard to convey. And, you know, everyone has a family album that's full of really goofy-looking people that were stopped in, in action because when you're in a motion picture or theater or something, you can get that emotion and move on, because it's that continuum of time. And something like this, you have a frozen motion aspect, and it's just really easy to look lampoonable. You know, you end up in a position that is just goofy, and you don't want to immortalize goofiness unless you're goofy. Lincoln had a very characteristic skull and a very generally wide mouth, and you're trying to forensically recreate him in his youth before he became quite so cadaverous, and also to give that sense of unencumbered mirth, I guess. So there was a lot of trial and error and a lot of work to get to a point where you had a believable kind of unencumbered belly laugh that didn't look
1: spoofable. Unencumbered mirth. I love it. I couldn't wait to see it. On to the ceremony. We walk through Central Park to where the statue is centrally located, halfway between the playground and community concert hall. It's covered in a blue tarp. I can just make out the limestone base, which serves as both a bench and a representation of the original courthouse's cornerstone. The limestone originated from a Naperville quarry and was salvaged from the foundation of a local barn. It's engraved with the words DuPage County Courthouse, 1839-1868. A crowd of about 150 gathers around. It includes the Worley family, the mayor, and a strong mix of local leaders and politicians. Mary Lou's brother, Grant Worley, pulls double duty, as he is also a state representative. We all know Abraham Lincoln when he led our nation through the greatest struggle our nation has ever seen. But to think of him as a young man trying to change his little corner of the world, and thereby impact our little corner of the world, Naperville, is a lasting legacy that we honor with this statue. So without further ado, let's take a look at what a young Abraham Lincoln might have looked like. (laughs) <laughs> and there he is, seated before us, young Abe, mid-story, laughing at his own joke. Even though he's frozen in time, you sense the motion. His hand hovers over his raised knee as if he's just told a knee slapper, a golly His head is thrown back, captured in mid-laugh. His other hand rests on the statue base to brace himself against his own great guffaw. I
2: work hard to try and bring some life and emotion to things and give the clothing some movement to where it doesn't look like melted butter.
1: Not only do his clothes twist and crinkle in just the right way to illustrate Lincoln's movement, but the material appears a little tattered, the boots worn. Even the buttons on his shirt are thin from overuse. He's
3: poor. In 1839, Lincoln had to borrow money just to go to Springfield and look like he could sit in the state legislature.
1: If David Allen Clark was hoping to capture mirth, then he succeeded. It's hard not to smile back at Lincoln's wide, open mouth laugh, and that's when I noticed something interesting about Lincoln's mouth. He's laughing so hard you can see his teeth. There are no existing photographs that reveal Lincoln's teeth. No one alive today has ever seen them, and there are no written descriptions. You're in the early
2: 1800s. What kind of dental work did he have? And as far as we could tell, there are no real contemporaneous records of bad teeth. You know, there was nobody that pointed out and said, What an uncultured rube! His teeth are terrible. So we went with something. You have to reflect the times you live in, and everybody in America now has really good teeth. So we kind of moved more toward that way. I mean, he was a strong, healthy guy, so he
1: probably had strong, healthy teeth. The statue certainly lives up to Michael Krebs' line from the beginning of this episode, let Lincoln's humor shine. It does so, both figuratively and literally. Because it's shiny, it's a shiny statue. That nose is going to be even more shiny with people rubbing it all the time. The statue actually goes a step further. The limestone base forms a little bench, offering plenty of room to sit alongside Abe, so even if you don't want to rub his nose, you can enjoy his company while you eat a sandwich. David Allen Clark is proud of his work. He loves the support he got from Naperville, the Whirlies, and Century Walk, and the opportunity to work on his first Lincoln. It really is a a
2: once-in-a-lifetime thing. In a digital world, you get a chance to delete and download and edit and reformat and everything, This is a 3,000-year-old medium. It's like once you're done, you're done forever. That will outlive my grandkids' grandkids. I mean, they pull bronzes out of the Aegean Sea every 25 years, and they don't change much. It's something I keep in mind. You know, you're kind of carving your own tombstone.
1: After he says a few words to the crowd, and several others speak at the unveiling ceremony, Bran Baboski pulls out his wild card. Outside of myself and a few others, no one knows that Abraham Lincoln himself portrayed by Michael Krebs, is going to make an appearance. Michael has been waiting just off to the side of the park, laying low in the parking lot that Mary Lou Worley believes will be gone one day. Michael steps up to the top of the little rise that slopes down to the statue. You can feel an excited energy come over the crowd. Abraham Lincoln is here. Abraham Lincoln is here. At six foot four, Michael is the exact same height as Lincoln. Looking down on the crowd, his younger self, he has a towering Lincoln-esque stature. There's a Lincoln-esque intensity about him. You feel like you are in the presence of someone who is capital I important. So he defies expectations by opening with a joke. But what
0: can I say? Perhaps your expectations are a little too high? It might be better for me just to remain silent. You know, I'd rather be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all possible doubt.
1: (laughs) Michael continues in this vein for a couple minutes, but once he's captured everyone's attention, his speech takes a serious turn. He's about to chop some wood.
0: And I am not at all ashamed to confess that many years ago, right here in Illinois, I was a hired laborer, mauling rails, at work on a flatboat. Just what might happen to any poor man's son. And now I want everyone to have an opportunity that is equal to my own. You all have, through this free form of government in which we've engaged, an open field for the full exercise of your... Intelligence, you all have equal privileges in the race of life.
1: Okay, I want to give you a little more, because Michael is captivating. The crowd is silent, hanging on his every word, and he delivers.
0: And again, I must admonish you not to be turned from the stern purpose of defending your beloved country and its free institutions by any arguments urged by... Ambitious designing men, but instead hold fast to this union. We can succeed only by concert. It's not a question can any of us imagine better, but can we all do better?
1: After Michael's sobering speech, it's Mary Lou Worley's turn to give a few words and she understands the gravity of her position.
3: Thank you all for being here. I could never have imagined following Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Wow. She recounts the story of her dad's efforts to save Central Park and then closes down the show.
3: It has been an incredible journey to lose your parents and to help see their vision come to reality. And nobody would be happier and more funny today than Dad if he were here, because to see Central Park respected, to see a wonderful statue. So I would like to thank everyone on behalf of the Worley family and thank my brothers and sisters Please come and make what you will of our laughing Lincoln. Interact with him. There's a lot of future that can be brought in with public art.
1: You know, I came here to cover the unveiling of a statue. Instead, I uncovered the story of Don Worley. Abraham Lincoln played a role in creating Naperville, putting the courthouse here on a plot of land that later became Central Park. But then Don Worley saved that park. If he hadn't, if the ambitious designing men who wanted to put a parking lot there had succeeded, there certainly wouldn't be a Lincoln statue now. Would anyone even remember the history, Lincoln's connection to the place? But thanks to Don Worley, there is a statue. I mean, yes, his seven children played a big part, and so did Bran Baboski and Century Walk, sculptor David Allen Clark, obviously, but it's Don Worley's statue. Lincoln's legacy inspires others to do great things, and in Naperville, these two funny, colorful men are forever intertwined. Don Worley is buried in St. Peter and Paul Cemetery in Naperville. His tombstone contains the Walt Disney quote he found so inspirational, acknowledges his role as Naperville's trolleymeister, thanks visitors for stopping by, and encourages them to feed the birds. Incidentally, his wife of 63 years, Jean Knock Worley, is buried beside him. Her tombstone encourages visitors to take a friend to lunch. At the end of the unveiling ceremony, the Worley family gathers for pictures with Laughing Lincoln, and of course, they rub his nose. Then they encourage others to do the same. Now that the sculpture is in place, I ask Mary Lou what she hopes Lincoln will bring to Naperville. She rattles off a list. Families gathering for photos, having a picnic, lunch with Lincoln, and using the site for public history talks. She hopes it attracts and inspires those interested in both art and history. And you can bet some politicians will give speeches next to it too. But overall, in honor of her father, in honor of Walt Disney's words that he lived by, She wants it to make people happy.
3: There's times when you're not so happy and there's times when things are out of perspective and even maybe just sitting next to a bronze sculpture of a Laughing Lincoln will be enough to remind you that hey, look at the hard times this man went through that he didn't even know were coming and take another breath in the fresh air of Central Park and become whatever your next you is gonna be.
1: Now it's time to head over to Naperville's own Solemn Oath Brewery so we can sit down and have a beer with Michael Krebs. The Man Behind the Beard. During our ride over to Solemn Oath, I find out that Michael is from Freeport, which we featured in our second episode. He was excited to hear that we'd already interviewed Lincoln presenter George Buss at Debate Square.
0: Next to the Union Dairy, did you have yourself a hot fudge Sunday while you were there? <laughs> the infamous Union Dairy. Wow, she's now the mayor, the owner. is now the mayor of really? Freeport. And from what I hear, she's the best mayor they've ever had.
1: Oath Brewery opened its doors in 2012. It was founded by John and Joe Barley. That's right, the Barley Brothers. They were destined to either make beer or cereal. So lucky for us, they went with beer. Their brewery is tucked away in an industrial park on Naperville's west side. It's not the easiest place to find. I feel like that's the back door. I that's it. I could just run in and if somebody yells at me, then that's the wrong door. <laughs> but we eventually found it and headed inside. Solomoth happens to have a neat connection to Naperville's history, and to Mary Lou Worley. In 2016, a 250-year-old Naperville landmark, the Hobson Oak Tree, was dying and had to be cut down. This tree was older than Naperville, older than the United States. The Naperville Parks Foundation divided up the wood from the tree and distributed it to local artists, who then created whatever they wanted, bowls, tables, vases, ornaments, even a guitar. These items were then auctioned off to raise money for the foundation. But one of the most unique projects, according to Mary Lou Worley, who happens to serve as secretary of the Parks Foundation's board of directors, was a special beer brewed by Solemn Oath. They created an imperial milk stout aged in bourbon barrels and flavored with wood chips from the Hobson Oak. They called it, appropriately, Hobson Beer. It was a limited run, for obvious reasons, but portions of each sale went to the Naperville Parks Foundation, which, to date, has raised over $31,000 off that old tree. I would have loved to try it, but Hobson beer wasn't available when we dropped by the brewery. So instead we went for some lighter fare. Old Faythorn, an American pale ale, and Lou, a Kolsch style ale. We set up in a cozy little booth area just off the taproom. We've got some pictures and promotional video up on our website. And if you look, you'll notice that Michael is not wearing his Lincoln outfit. He explained to me that he isn't comfortable wearing the suit when he's out of character. In other words, he didn't want to be dressed as Lincoln while being interviewed as Michael Krebs. I think that's a bit of the theater actor in him. He's off stage so he has to shed his character. But you know what? With his blue jeans and his button-up shirt loose at the collar, he still looks like Lincoln. Just, you know, casual Lincoln. Lincoln on a Saturday, having a beer, maybe about to chop some wood. All right, here's Michael Krebs. Michael Krebs from Freeport, Illinois. Okay, now Freeport, that's where another Lincoln presenter, George Buss, is from. Yes. So it seems like Freeport is known for pretzels and Lincolns.
0: Must be something in the water.
1: (laughs) That's right. Did you know George when you were there?
0: Yes. He was one year younger than me in high school, and uh, I don't think either of us knew what the future portended back then. And how long did you live in Freeport? Till 18. I attended Rockford College for one year and then transferred to Western Illinois University in Macomb. I went on to get a Bachelor of Arts degree in theater and business, and it served me well because... When I left college, I was drifting for a little bit before I returned to Rockford and started working at New American Theater in 1980. And I worked there till 1989. So I was very lucky that I had that experience.
1: Now, you're probably the first Lincoln presenter I've talked to who actually has a background in theater. When did you first get into theater? High
0: school. In fact, George would remember this too. There's a very famous patriarch of theater that lived in Freeport. Her name was Jeanette Lloyd. And the auditorium for the junior high and high school is now named after her. And she recognized artists when she saw them. And she uh, nursed a couple of us along. And I think there's seven or eight of us that have made a professional living in theater because of her prodding and pushing us to do so.
1: Well, what put you on the path to Lincoln?
0: Well. After leaving New American Theater in 1989, I decided to move to Chicago and start exploring the possibility of a one-man Lincoln show while I was auditioning for theater around Chicago. And it was then that I reunited with a great playwright that I had met while I was at Western Illinois University. His name's James Clark. And we started to develop a script that would be what we thought a good one-man show for Lincoln. But as we started to develop the script, I started to have concerns about a laughing Lincoln and a more serious Lincoln and how to build bridges so that it was a more natural transition for the audience. So the idea came up that we had to have a Mary Todd Lincoln involved too. And from that premise, it turned into a four-character show. Tad Lincoln, Lincoln's son, and William Crook, who was the Pinkerton guard, assigned to Lincoln on the last day of his life. So we premiered a four-person show in Galesburg following my doing the Lincoln-Douglas debates down there, and we were off and running.
1: Before or after C-SPAN? It
0: was happening simultaneously. We were developing the script, and with the success of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, we had created a huge audience to debut a program like this. And We got it off and running after that. But it was mostly based on the success of those Lincoln-Douglas debates back in October of 1994.
1: And why did C-SPAN do that debate series?
0: It was Brian Lamb's belief that after Harold Holzer released a book called The Unexpurgated Lincoln-Douglas Debates, that they decided they would approach each community where the seven debates happened, Ottawa being the first. And... (sighs) Brian Lamb's stipulation with C-SPAN coming in to film these is that each community would be responsible for how it would be produced, how it would be showcased. And how did you get involved with that? Once again, my playwright came in handy. I had heard about C-SPAN coming in and doing the Lincoln-Douglas debates. I had heard that George Bus was going to do the Freeport debate, but then I heard there was a call going out in Galesburg that they needed a Lincoln... And the one thing I liked about auditioning for that Galesburg debate is it's the only actual Lincoln-Douglas debate site left, the old Knox building on the campus of Knox College. So with that real background, with that being the real historic building, with the actor I was working with in Galesburg, we had a a pretty top-notch performance. We had memorized the script. It's really not a script, it's the actual debate material. So he memorized an hour and a half of material and I memorized an hour and a half of material. And that solidified the success of that debate. And the third most important element of our debates was the audience. They were rehearsed as well. They came in with the right laugh lines and the right reactions to everything we were doing in the debate. In fact, when we started working on the debate, there's a famous Lincoln author that lived in Galesburg, Doug Wilson, who has since retired, We asked him questions. We can't seem to get this debate up to the three-hour time mark that it was actually noted for. And Doug said one word to us, barkers, we're forgetting the barkers. With a crowd that big, Lincoln and Douglas utilized people that were standing on wagons in the middle of the crowd to relay the message to the back of the crowd, what was just said. And Lincoln and Douglas both took the appropriate breaks during the debates to let the barkers deliver the message to the rest of the crowd. And with the crowd reactions, that's what made it come up to a three-hour debate. And it's still being shown in schools, so it's, it's become a great educational tool. And I was very lucky that day that President Clinton was watching, and he called the C-SPAN bus immediately following the debates, and invited Larry Deemer, who played Stephen Douglas, and myself to be a part of his speech when he came to Galesburg three months later. A year after that, I was invited out to Washington to record another speech, a reelection speech for Library of Congress. So within a year of having Lincoln under my belt and having another play ready to produce, I was already in Washington, D.C. working with Library of Congress.
1: Wow. Did you know at that point that you were going to be A professional Lincoln?
0: Well, I think there was a lot of elements that added to it. Ken Burns introduced the Civil War series, and it started what I think was the snowball effect of Lincoln coming back into the American psyche. That's the only way I can describe it. Where there was a void because we just didn't have that much history on it, I think Ken Burns was bringing it to everybody's living room. And there was a new national interest in Lincoln and the whole history of the Civil War. Because right after that, ABC produced a show called Lincoln based on the Coonhart photography book, coffee table book that was out at the time. That four-hour special that was on television had rave reviews and a great audience. And the interest about Lincoln and the Civil War period just exploded across the country.
1: Now, I've seen some footage of you at this C-SPAN event, and you don't have the beard because Lincoln wouldn't have had the beard yet. And yet you still looked just like Abraham Lincoln. Was there a point in your life where you realized that you looked kind of like Abraham Lincoln?
0: When I approached this character for the first time, I was 36 years old. So I was doing a lot of makeup. And it was a lot of work just to add a beard, do the right makeup, try to make myself look older. I guess I was just lucky to have the height, similar hair, and the ability to grow a beard that's somewhat similar to Lincoln, I realized very quickly that I shouldn't worry so much about the makeup. There was a discussion with other actors that were putting me on the right track. Don't worry about some of the things you can't control. Worry about the things you can control. And worry about the history of it being as verbatim as possible about it. Find the voice. Find the characterizations believe me, age will come. And sure enough, age came. And it's kind of funny for me to look back now and look at those pictures and see that I actually tried to apply makeup to look more like Lincoln, but I think as time has evolved, I think I've just morphed into him for some reason.
1: Did your interest in Lincoln start because you grew up in Freeport? I mean, there's such a rich Lincoln history in Freeport, so you would have grown up hearing that.
0: I grew up hearing about it, but. With the actual debate site having been destroyed in Freeport, there really wasn't a place to really center your attention on. There was another building in Freeport called the Brewster House, where it's the only place that Lincoln and Douglas stayed under the same roof during the debates. That was destroyed in the 60s. So by the time I was growing up, there wasn't a lot of Lincoln memorabilia left around the town. It was really working at New American Theatre, doing history plays and learning how to study about a character that really opened the doors to how to approach how to play a character like this. Because so many times we were playing characters that were based on real life. So your job was to go out and do as much research as you could do to find the undertones of this character. So I think with those tools in my hand and with the uh, connections I had made in theater I had enough people around me, surrounding me, that were going to open doors for me and make a theatrical presentation about Lincoln possible. I would have never found a playwright had I not had that theater background. I would have never found the right actors to play Mary Todd. So I'm lucky in the fray that I had all those connections in theater and I was able to transfer that over to a, a Lincoln presentation.
1: You have a Mary Todd that you work with? Yes. How did you meet her?
0: My original actress was Deanne Heck, and she was from the Galesburg area. Within six months of us launching the show and all the requests we were getting around the state to do it, Deanne was able to uh, meet those obligations with me for the first couple of months, but she had three teenage daughters at home. It became very obvious as the connections were getting further away that she wasn't going to be able to commit herself full-time to it. So with my playwright's help, we started looking at Steppenwolf's resume sheets. We were invited into the Goodman to look at their resume sheets. Stacks of pictures and resumes a foot high. And we kept looking for the right face, the right background. But my playwright was one night at a party, saw Deborah Ann Miller there, asked her what she was doing next. He ran out to his car, got the script, handed it to her. She called him a week later and said, I really want to do this part. I have to do this part. And Deborah and I just celebrated 20 years together last year. And now, she now plays Louisa May Alcott in her own one-man show. She plays Jane Austen and other characters. So she's not only done Mary Todd Lincoln with me for 20 years, She's got requests around the country to do these other female characters of history that she does as well. So I'm very lucky to find somebody that cares that much about history and also is a very, very good dressmaker. She's made four of the Mary Todd Lincoln costumes. We just have so much praise everywhere we go for our accuracy and costuming that we
1: do. You mentioned she does these other parts. Do you do other parts outside of Lincoln now?
0: Well, for the last 20 years, I haven't been able to because the demands for doing Lincoln have been so much that I don't have time to alter my appearance to do other performances. So I'm lucky that I'm getting the calls to do Lincoln around the country, but I'd like to return to theater someday. I mean, right now, this is keeping me busy enough. So.
1: And do you get asked to play Lincoln in plays?
0: Yes. In fact, there's a lot of things on Backburners that we have going now. A script called The Train Station. It's a modern adaptation of Lincoln, it's based on a Chicago story where there's a tragic accident underground on an L, and the only person that comes out of the tunnel is who you think is the survivor, but I'm in the underground train station and I'm the only other one there, and I am his liaison to take the next step from planet Earth. But he doesn't realize that at first. And I've had a lot of scripts come to me in the last several years that bring Lincoln into a modern audience. Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, Timeless on NBC. It's amazing to me that there's so many people that wanna bring Lincoln into a modern day era and see how he would react to today.
1: Do you seek out these projects? I mean, you've done a lot of commercial work. Do you seek this out or does it just come to you?
0: I do not work with any agency. In most cases, the producers of the program contact me directly.
1: And some of those commercials are very funny. Do you ever have any input on that?
0: I'm always surprised. Most of the stuff I receive in commercial shoots are well-written, and we don't change anything from the script. It's just, I, I just think it's hilarious what we try to do with these. And it's always been a point of mine from day one in doing Lincoln and producing my own show that the audience has to know about the humor of Lincoln. He just had one of the greatest senses of humor of any of our presidents, and I just think people need to know that because you always have this dark image of Lincoln, this foreboding, the Civil War weighing down on him. But we have to remember all the great quotes of Lincoln, the great amount of humor he displayed. I think one of my favorite quotes of his is, I laugh because I must not cry. And I think that's what kept Lincoln's spirits up and why he liked to attend theater and why he liked to see comedies, because he needed something to bolster his spirit a little bit during the tragedy of the Civil War. So I think it's always very important to let Lincoln's humor shine.
1: Not a lot of people now know that Lincoln was funny. Did a lot of people back then know that he was funny? Oh, yes,
0: of course. I mean, his being able to tell stories in court, his being able to reach a jury, no matter what educational level they had. And a lot of times he would just... uh, hammer a statement over and over again till he reached the entire jury or reached the entire audience. So humor was a great asset for him.
1: Do you have any uh, favorite Lincoln anecdotes that you like to, to tell?
0: There's one we dare get away with in school. There's only so much Lincoln humor we can actually give to the school kids. Some of it may be not too appropriate for elementary school, but safer for middle school. Lincoln, in trying to tell a simple story, trying to reach a jury, A judge was so upset with his presence that he only gave Lincoln one minute to respond. So Lincoln told a story of a man walking down the road with a pitchfork when he was suddenly attacked by a dog, trying to defend himself and ward off the beast. The prongs of his pitchfork stuck in the critter and killed it. Farmer came running out of his house, yelling, What made you kill my dog? The man on the road, well, what made him attack me? The farmer came out with another question. Well, why didn't you come after him with the other end of your pitchfork? And the man on the road said, well, why didn't he come after me with his other end? (laughs) Lincoln would always use humor to try to make someone laugh to get a point across. And I think that's one of the strengths we see today. You can always reach someone with humor before you talk to them about serious matters.
1: Are school visits a, a large part of what you do?
0: Yes, they are often called into elementary schools january february and march that's when elementary schools are studying the presidency and then we find ourselves very busy in april and may because that's when middle schools are studying the constitution and the civil war so we seem to have a nice dovetail effect with schools and what age groups were called in to do each year and The glory of being at it for 25 years is your reputation precedes you. These schools, some of them I've been doing for 20 years and I'm being called back to every year to do over and over again. I've often said you're only as good as your last gig, so never treat anything like it's secondhand. Never treat anything like it's disposable. That connection you're doing today could lead to another connection tomorrow you're not even aware of.
1: Since you have done TV and film and commercial work, And you do a lot of these school visits. Do you have a a preference?
0: Oh, commercials are boring. Working on film is boring. It's it's very time-consuming. You you spend a lot of time in your trailer. You spend a lot of time with panic moments. Sometimes you're up till 3 or 4 in the morning filming these things for proper lighting and everything. Theater is always the thing. If you make a mistake, you just go on. The audience response is the feeding device that... Keeps the production up and going. So I've always preferred live theater to anything you record. It's that instant response. It's that instant gratification you have from all the hard work you do. And you're on from the moment you start till the moment you leave stage. And there, there's something very rewarding about that, that you follow through with what you've hyped yourself up to do all day. And nothing can stop that runaway freight train once you start. But in television and film, it's always bump start, bump start, bump start. Do it again, do it again. It's up to you to keep your energy level at where it needs to be, but sometimes it can be hard to obtain when you're on a 14 hour day shooting this stuff.
1: But the pay's probably a little better. <laughs> yes,
0: <laughs> yes, it does. And that's why you do it.
1: Do you have times of the year where you're just swamped
0: with work? Yeah, it's usually uh, the January f- through May period in the last several years because of Bicentennial with Lincoln, which all started in 2009. There's been so many bicentennials and sesquentennials about the Civil War, right. and 200th anniversary of this, and now I'm into the 150th anniversary of everything else. So there hasn't really been a lull in the summertime for the last several years just because of all those communities that are looking for some kind of Lincoln programming especially during summer months when you're going to have a larger audience because of festivals and other things. But I make a lot of trips to Washington, D.C. during the winter months, too, to work at, work at places like the Lincoln Cottage or to work with the Lincoln Group of D.C.
1: There's the, um, the Abraham Lincoln Presenters, or no, Association of Lincoln Presenters. Yes. Do you do anything with them at all?
0: Uh, No, really never have. I I remember I used to be on the list. Somebody years ago wanted to just make a complete list of all the Lincolns that were across the country. But I think there's some Lincolns that will agree to get together with a group of other Lincolns and others that just kind of keep it at arm's length, and I think I might be one of those people. But I, I wouldn't discourage anybody from joining it or being a part of it. It can be a great tool to accumulate knowledge about Lincoln.
1: When you first got into lincoln obviously you had to do some amount of research so how did you prepare for the role
0: there were so many books coming out at the time one of my favorite books was simply called lincoln by david herbert donald it's the only book about lincoln that ever made it to the london's best sellers list so this book had a lot of strength so with that book and other books i was accumulating along the way I think I had read about 25 books before we ever decided to develop a script. Some books you can open, and with a chapter, you know you're basically getting into the same biography about Lincoln again. But I've always been fascinated by a more subjective view. I think that David Herbert Donald had nailed with writing Lincoln. But I think one of my greatest resources that I go to to this day is the complete Lincoln collection. It's the Rutger collection, a nine-volume set. Everything Lincoln ever wrote, ever said, is all in those nine volumes. Did you do any kind of research for your Lincoln voice? What I found is the high squeaky thing that we've all heard about. He had a real high pitch voice. That was only due to the fact he was yelling to 15,000 people. And he would actually bring his voice up a little bit because he found out it carried a little further. We don't hear about any of this kind of vocal thing in his presidency when he was in a chamber and he was addressing congress nobody talks about a high squeaky falsetto breaking voice i, I think it, i don't know if he had a baritone voice but i just try to keep it as much illinois kentucky i don't think he has that much of a dialect from kentucky i think he's more shaped by illinois than he is by kentucky where we're very strong with Mary Todd. My actress does a very good Kentucky dialect altogether, because she was Kentucky bred all the way. Eight years of education in Kentucky. Where Lincoln was out of Kentucky by the time he was eight years old. I don't think Kentucky in the backwoods played as much on him as just the colloquialism of Midwest or whatever you want to call it for back then. Where if you went Kentucky on down in those days, the dialect just got thicker and thicker as you went. That's what invaded Illinois until along came the fur trappers in Northern Illinois and a more sophisticated group started to affect Illinois.
1: Have you ever gotten a request to do anything as Lincoln that you just thought that's not in the spirit of Lincoln?
0: Well, there was the Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter
1: book that came out and... I should note that you were in the official book trailer that was released by the publisher.
0: Yes. And it was Hatchet Books themselves, well, Bodega Productions in New York, that were really looking for a Lincoln that could do this physical fighting. And maybe I was young enough to still do that kind of physical fighting. But I was a little worried about it, but I called a few people, some people I trusted at Chicago History Museum, and said, uh, asked them, do you think I'm shooting myself in the foot for doing something like this? And the response back from almost all of them was... Are you kidding? Any foot in the door to get to these kids. What they find out in the book is that Lincoln actually had a sister that died. His children don't know that. That Lincoln had a a stepmother that came into his life. What he was able to do in that book is use some actual history about Lincoln and then twist it into this twilight atmosphere. But really what he was doing too is imparting enough knowledge about Lincoln and his childhood Or you might get some education out of it. And as most of the teachers told me in the Chicago area, it gives you street cred. (laughs) This is how you're going to reach those kids when they find out you've done something they're interested in. It's a way to open their door to something broader about Lincoln, the real history of Lincoln. So I took it with a grain of salt. We did it. It was very successful. Tim Burton bought the rights to the book a week after the book trailer was released. And I think we were one of the first book trailers. I think we were one of the first book trailers, period. But Seth Graham understood, because of his work with MTV and everything he was doing, that if you really want to reach an audience, put out a book trailer and try to make it look like you're looking into history. That's why it was filmed in black and white. They only used red when it was for blood or something. We've twisted Lincoln into every pretzel you can imagine just to bring him into today's society. Right. So I think I go with those historians, any foot in the door to reach a larger audience or to educate them further about Lincoln, you should take that advantage. So I think that's why I didn't hesitate to do something like Timeless, where they were going to alter the history of Lincoln as well. But I take a little pride in the... Uh, the movie I was in, Field of Lost Shoes, because that really was based on history, the new market campaign. There was a lot of people that wanted to be involved in that movie, and I felt very lucky I got to do something like that, too. So I guess it goes to show you, if you can do a little fiction about Lincoln, you might get to do some non-fiction. Right.
1: about Right. How has being Lincoln affected your personal life? It's brought me
0: a lot of respect that I don't know if I would have ever gained any other way. It's had its toll on relationships. Not financially, usually, but just because of the work commitment involved in it. It, It's it's been a long, arguous journey, but when I look back on it, I don't think I would have had it any other way. It's something I never knew would last this long. I didn't think I would have something that would take me to my retirement years doing something like this. When I was working in legitimate theater, I don't like calling it professional theater. What's the difference between community theater and professional theater? Not a lot of difference sometimes. But a lot of older mentors were constantly ringing your bell saying, you've got to find your own niche. If you want to survive in this business, you've got to find your niche. And if you're always at the mercy of a casting director or a producer, and you're just a feather in the wind, you, your longevity might not be very long. But most of the successful people I found in the arts are somebody that found that niche that they could always use as a backdrop. Uh, one of my favorites is having met Hal Holbrook. I know when he started out in New York, after his wife became pregnant, he had to find a job in right away. And he had the luck of being able to play Mark Twain. And all through his professional life, he was able to fall back on that presentation of Mark Twain in the lean years and go on the road and do something like that to support his firstborn child. So he found his niche. And I had a great conversation with him about 20 years, 25 years ago. I was worried about staging, production value, and everything else. And Hal said the greatest thing to me I'll always remember. He goes... The only thing you have to worry about is there's a switch on most walls, lights up or lights off. Don't worry about the other stuff. Worry about your character and your research and be prepared for anything that's thrown at you. So that's really the lessons I took from mentors that prepared me for doing something like this. If I was successful at it, it might last a few years. I just had no idea it'd last 25 years.
1: So how do people
0: react when they just see you out in public? It's always different. Sometimes it pays, pays dividends. About 10 years ago, I was in New York, had done an event, and I wanted to move up my flight because I realized a bad storm was coming in and I might get laid over in New York. So I showed up at LaGuardia, I was flying out on Southwest, and I wanted to get an earlier flight, but everything was booked solid, there was a waiting list a page long. But I looked enough like Lincoln where people at the desk were smiling and wanted to take a picture, so I acted accordingly and took a picture with him. I went to a food station just hoping I could get on that earlier flight when I heard over the intercom, just as I was putting the cup of coffee to my mouth, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, show up at gate 26. And I quickly put down the coffee, started to race down that horrible long hallway at LaGuardia and as I approached the gate I saw all these heads sticking around the corner waiting for Abraham Lincoln so it got me on an earlier <laughs> flight when I was out in Vegas filming commercials I would have state troopers come up and take me out of security lines and just take me right on boards so they could talk to me about doing Lincoln so sometimes in the transportation world they can pay you dividends sometimes when you're in a small town, and there might not be a lot of excitement, you become the focus. So every form of refuge has its price. So I guess if I have to look like anybody, Abraham Lincoln is not such a bad character to look like because I don't care where I've traveled in this country and other countries, they know who I am when I arrive. They try to make you feel as comfortable as Abraham Lincoln would himself. So. I can't think of anybody else that this would happen to as far as playing a historical character. But sometimes you just wish the attention would be shut off and you could just blend into the background, but that's the price you pay for doing something like this. But I won't say it's a, it's a hindrance because oftentimes it can make life a little easier, too.
1: What do you like most about being Abraham Lincoln?
0: The most important thing I think we can take from Lincoln is his resolve to articulate things that people hadn't articulated so clearly before in ending slavery. And his address to Congress in 1862, his brilliance in writing something he really didn't think would amount to anything, the Gettysburg Address, and the care and love he put into the second inaugural, his wisdom in writing will stand the test of time more than any other president. He had a wonderful economy of words, but those words really rang with truth. And I can't think of anybody I've ever read in all my studies that was so articulate about stating a point of view that maybe people hadn't really thought about before. And he was really opening a door and showing us the light where I think it was a lot of darkness. And to see racism once again rising at the level that it's rising to we're almost experiencing, not almost, we're not nearly at that point, but we're seeing a lot of things Lincoln was dealing with in his own time. And it wasn't a very big difference between the borderline. It happened in Alton, Illinois, that the Civil War really began in the 1830s. And then to see what was happening in Kansas when it was called Bleeding Kansas, people storming in to establish rights for Kansas, would have become a slavery state or would it become a free state? So there was a lot of things happening during Lincoln's growing up period, his lawyer days that added to the influence of what Lincoln was feeling and finally what he was able to articulate. He was only 21 years old when he wrote a letter to the Sangamon Journal and said, if that's what it's come to in this country, then I'd rather move to Russia where they make no pretense of loving liberty." And I think that's a message that we're starting to see come alive again. If our democracy is at some fragile point because we have to accept this kind of racism again, then we need to address it with more articulation and be able to talk about it. And I think that's where Lincoln was really opening a lot of doors for us, by talking about it. And in those Lincoln-Douglas debates, the whole nation was listening or reading what Lincoln was projecting for this country. And by time he became a candidate for the presidency, a lot of people knew about these incredible views and his ability to articulate what was happening in this country. And I think we need that same kind of guidance again. All right hope that wasn't too much meat on the bone. No, no, I
1: think that was perfect. I think that's uh, awesome. I think we should close on that. <laughs> that really was a good place to end, but I realized I hadn't asked Michael for his thoughts on the laughing Lincoln statue, so I squeezed that in. This is for the 30-somethings out there. This is to
0: inspire them. This is how far he was in his career when he was 30, and he was having a ball. He was making jokes and becoming famous on the circuit court just for his storytelling and his prowess in court. So it's really a gateway for the younger people. And I think that's why they wanted to do the beardless statue and everything, is just to inspire youth. It should be geared toward youth. You can have another stoic statue of Lincoln standing there with the beard and everything, but maybe it'll give a kid second thought. Well, why is he laughing? Why doesn't he have the beard? Why is he just wearing suspenders and a shirt? You know. So I think it opens up a door that kids will ask about.
1: Well, here's to drinking with Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln, 2020. Thank you for listening to the Drinkin' with Lincoln podcast. And thanks to Michael Krebs for coming on the show and letting us shadow him during the day. We've got a couple other stories Michael told that didn't quite make it into this episode, including a really good one about getting his tailor-made Lincoln suit from a Jewish refugee of Nazi Germany. You can find these bonus clips and our show notes at WNIJ.org. Thank you to all the Naperville folks we got to meet. Mary Lou Worley, Betty Worley, Bran Boboski, and of course, thank you to sculptor David Allen Clark. I'd also like to thank Solomoth Brewery for sharing your space and your delicious beer. Our sound engineer is Spencer Tritt, and the show's intern is Brian Mulcrone. This is actually going to wrap up season one of Drinking with Lincoln. This has been a blast to work on, but it's a lot of work and takes a lot of time. So we're going to take a little break and concentrate on some other projects. One of those other projects is a new series, Curiosity in the Corn, where we look at the interesting people, places, and things of Northern Illinois. That's coming soon. And, of course, Drinking with Lincoln shall return. This show was produced by WNIJ, Northern Public Radio. Our theme music was provided by Mannequin Torso. You can check out their music and other music from regional and touring bands on another WNIJ show, Sessions from Studio A. I'll drop a link in the show notes, which you can find at WNIJ.org. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, the NPR One app, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and consider leaving us a review. And if there are any Lincoln topics you'd like us to cover in Season 2, or Lincoln presenters you'd like us to interview, drop us a line at dwlincolnpodcast at gmail.com. That's dwlincolnpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.
3: Abraham
1: Lincoln Abraham Oh yeah, I've got that sensational story to tell. A deleted scene, if you will. So, not long after Joe Naper set up his own town as the county seat, with Lincoln's help, of course, other towns in DuPage County began to wonder why they couldn't be the county seat, especially the towns more centrally located. Over the years, petitions were sent to Springfield and ignored, referendums were denied, legislation was shot down, but in 1857, a bill proposing a change in county seat finally passed, and a vote was put to the people. And... Naperville prevailed, but the issue didn't die. It was just put on hold during the Civil War, or Civil War reasons, and then in 1867, the city of Wheaton made a claim on the county seat, and it came up for vote again. This time, it got tense. Before the election, both sides threw out accusations of corruption and voter fraud. Election officials were harassed. Threats of violence forced one election judge to flee town, and then on election day, a riot broke out in Wheaton when heavily armed Napervillians, we'll call them Napervillians, attacked people outside the Wheaton depot. Wheaton supporters responded in kind, but a Civil War veteran wound up dead, struck in the head by a flying rock. Wheaton ended up winning the election by a narrow margin, but Napervillians were outraged. They immediately contested the results, to no avail. When Wheaton completed its new courthouse a year later, Naperville refused to hand over the county records. Injunctions and lawsuits flew back and forth. DuPage County government ground to a halt. No taxes could be collected, no marriage licenses or death certificates issued, no services provided, and this dragged on for months. Finally, Wheaton had had enough. The county sheriff put together a posse of 80 armed men to liberate the county records. The posse rode on Naperville at night. They cut through town, headed straight for Central Park, though it wasn't called that back then, broke into the courthouse, and seized the documents. A judge who lived across the street raised the alarm, and a mob of Napervillians came out to confront the invaders. The Wheatonians fled with their booty, but in their haste, left several documents behind. As a result of this midnight raid, local papers warned of a DuPage County Civil War. The cities were stocked with fully armed Civil War veterans, so this wasn't outside the realm of possibility. In Wheaton, the newly liberated county records were put under armed guard. As for the records left behind in Naperville, they were sent to Chicago for safekeeping until the two towns could sort out this mess. The records were still in Chicago three years later when Mrs. O'Leary's cow allegedly kicked that lantern and most of the city burned to the ground. It took five years to resolve the conflict and several more for tensions to die down and for government services to return to normal. In 1875, the county took the land that had once been home to the Naperville courthouse and deeded it back to the city to be used as public space. And that's the origin of Naperville's Central Park.
2: melted butter.